All right. So I do want to do the uh, Orchard Hill mentoring thing a little more justice. So that's a school that if you stood on this roof, you could probably see it's uh, building rooftops just over there. Um, I know we're in Cedar Falls, but there are students who, uh, think of it this way, when I was a kid and I knew school was getting canceled, I thought, sweet, that's a day of video games. There are kids in that school who when school gets canceled, it's another day of their parents hoping their heat holds on just long enough in their mobile home so their kids don't get frostbite, right? So there are students who need a, a reminder that God is after them, and we've actually been given an incredible opportunity to go into that school. We've been told we can share the gospel, talk to them about Jesus, and we can spend an hour a week with different students in that place. And, and an hour a week, you can actually make an eternal impact. Jesus often would say, that the kingdom of God belongs to children, but then he even said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And we've, we've literally been handed an opportunity to care for the least of these. And a lot of times it's doing math games or playing Connect Four, but that can turn into conversations that later turn into moments of faith, which then become an eternity uh, with their Father in heaven. And so I, I want you to know that you can sign up for that. We're looking for 14 of you to say, I bet I could be God in flesh for one kid an hour a week and give that up, okay? Because, yeah, it just, it shocked me. And I, and I also found out, I'm just gonna kind of push this more on you. Uh, most fires in weather like this are in mobile parks because parents are doing anything they can to heat the home and typically something goes wrong and they lose everything. So again, just for you to feel the weight of that sob story, but also the reality that if you had a warm place to sleep this last week, you're incredibly privileged Use your privilege and opportunity to share the gospel with those around you. Okay. Sorry. Not sorry, actually. Um, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along with us, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I am glad that you braved the cold, and I want you to know it's going to be 51 on Sunday because I was always drunk. Yep. I was always drunk. She just needs to go home. I don't get it. But... Hold on to any hope you have because then it'll be like negative 1,000 and everything will be covered in ice and we'll be like penguins going through Cedar Falls. It's going to happen. You guys, are you like a little sleepy from not having any class and trying to like actually do things except play video games and watch Netflix? Yeah, a lot of you on your heads. I get that. I get that. Um, yeah, this last week... It's so funny. I always want to come up here, and the, the things that I often battle are, I really want you to listen to what I have to say, because I do believe that it's not me speaking, that it's God. But then I also battle with these things where I, I want you to walk away thinking, wow, that was, that was powerful, or Michael's such a great teacher. And, and I think often what we do is we take the person on the stage, and we elevate them to a place where they must be so unlike us. And I just want to let you guys know, like, that's not true. I, I spent most of today fighting with my wife, and it wasn't her fault, it was mine. Like, and I'm not telling you that, like a, a false humility, like you know the no filter post on Instagram, this isn't one of those, okay? We're like, no filter, no. I, I want you to recognize that, that the, the words I'm going to say to you tonight, I do think they're a bit of a warning text and they're gonna feel intense, but I want you to know that the warning is not for all of you, the warning is for us, that you don't have perfect pastors, you don't have perfect staffers, you have people who are in desperate need of the same grace that you are, and maybe some days need it more than even you do. 
And so I, I just want to get myself out of the way so God can do what he wants to do. And I want to do that lastly by just praying for us. So let me do that. Jesus, I, I am so aware of my own brokenness, of the fractures and the fault lines in my heart, and yet I'm so aware of the grace that you've given me that fills them. And I just pray in this uh, cold uh, winter night that something would happen that would mark our lives forever. I'm going to probably pray that every Thursday because I believe in a God who does do extraordinary things in a mundane world, who is trying to wake the world up to let it know that this is not our home. And so in this moment, as, as we open your word, would your word and your presence be the thing that captivates us? Would, would who you are and how you reveal yourself to us and even how you warn us be a sign of just love? And would it cause us to see you more clearly and to walk out of this place just a little bit different? Would that happen every week, but especially now tonight, Jesus, would you speak to us? In your name we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 10, where are we in the conversation? So Paul has continued this really long discussion on food offered to idols. Yes, he's still going. He took kind of a detour last week with Reed's text, but he's going to continue his argument. So 1 Corinthians 8, he talked about the reality that this idol worship, food offered to idols, it can cause problems between you and your Christian brothers and sisters. And then he talked about how in chapter 9 that you and this idol worship the Corinthians were facing can affect your witness to the world. And we found how that affected us. And tonight, Paul wants them to see in chapter 10 that this whole idol worship issue can affect your heart and ultimately your relationship with your God. So at 8 was other Christians, 9, the world, tonight, our own hearts and our ability to worship and interact with God. And he's going to do that by starting with a bunch of stories. And actually, half of this text is all about what had happened in the Old Testament. Okay, so does, do all of you know what the Old Testament is? It's okay if you don't. It's the larger part of your Bible. And if you're like me, it's the one you probably read the least, right? But the problem is that to ignore any part of the Scripture is to ignore the whole story God is trying to tell us. And so for us to understand rightly what is going to happen tonight, we're going to have to take a journey back into the Old Testament. And that's actually really hard because a lot of us, uh, we think history is irrelevant. While in Hebrew culture and Israelite culture, history was everything. You will actually find the word remember more than any other word in a lot of cases in most of the Old Testament. It was their way of telling, like, remember what God has done. Remember what happened. Remember what happened. Remember what happened. Remembering history was critical for the Israelites to move forward into the future God had for them. And we're no different. The Israelites are our spiritual ancestors, and they were the Corinthian spiritual ancestors. Now, the only difference is when they would have heard this, most of them would have known these stories by heart. And it's okay if you actually don't know any of the stories at all. We're going to glance over them quickly, but I would so encourage you to read them more in depth. We are, this is the phrase, we're ahistorical, okay? So what that means is most of us act like history didn't start until we were born, right? Like history really began when you and I were born, and then things really took off for us when we got an iPhone. Like that's when history just went crazy. Like, like for example, how many of you remember 9-11? Okay, and when I say remember, I mean how many of you remember watching the television screen in school and then leaving that day? Anybody? Yes, a few of us. 
Like, I remember 9-11. I remember my teacher stopping the math lesson to turn on the TV to watch the horror of what was happening. I remember being dismissed from school, walking home, getting on my bike, and as it started to lightly rain, it was one of those rains where it was raining and the sun was still out. But the sun wasn't out high, it was starting to go down low, so it was almost yellow and orange. And as I biked through my crowded Minneapolis neighborhood, I remember all the candles in the windows, remembering what had happened that night. Like, I remember 9-11. I have a moment for what happened. We are losing a sense of what has happened as a generation and as a people. And the most dangerous place to lose a sense of what has happened is in our spiritual history. If we lose a sense of what has happened before, we will not rightly move into the future that God has for us. And so tonight, Paul wants to do that for us by taking us into what he said to the Corinthians. And so he starts off by doing, in verse 1 through 4, what Hebrew culture would call a midrash. It sounds like a weird diaper rash, but it's called a midrash, right? You just learned a Hebrew word. It's this ancient Hebrew uh, storytelling where you remember the past. And in remembering the past, you remember all the great things God has done. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. So he says, For, continuing his argument, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, so God appeared to them as a cloud to protect them, and they all passed through the sea. So in leaving Egypt, he ripped the Red Sea open so they could go through it. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That sounds weird. It's just this idea that like, walking through the Red Sea following Moses' leadership was like their way of being baptized. So we have a, like a, a black tank and we all clap. They just walked through the Red Sea. A little more epic, but probably not going to happen for us. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So this crazy thing God would do is he would make manna show up every morning and then Moses would hit this rock and water would pour out of it. And those two things would follow them so that they always had something to eat and something to drink. Okay, why in the world does Paul start that way? What, he, what he's wanting them to see is that in the same way that the Corinthians have experienced life with God, they understand the presence of God. They've been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They've seen God do incredible things. So did their spiritual ancestors. So did their spiritual ancestors. Maybe in some ways even more impressively and tangibly than the Corinthians had. He wants them to see, okay, you're not that different. You're not that different in the things you've experienced. You've had provision like they had and you have relationship like they had. But something was not right. Something was not right. In experiencing all this provision, it didn't quite seem to translate because in verse five, he says, nevertheless... God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That is a direct quote from the book of Numbers, also in your Old Testament. And you're like, what does that mean, scattered in the wilderness? It means a bunch of them died for doing really dumb stuff. And not just died, but like God killed them. Okay? And when we hear that, we're like, ooh, the Old Testament God. I don't like that one. He's the same one in the New Testament. It's the same one. So when you read that, you have to see something happened in the way the Israelites were living where not all of them made it to the promised land that God had set apart for them. Although they experienced this incredible provision and all of these incredible things they saw God doing, they did not enter the promised land. And so what you guys need to know is that this passage tonight is like a warning. 
Like if you're driving on a foggy night and you begin to see those flashing orange signs letting you know like the bridge is out or the road has collapsed, this passage is one of those. It's one of those telling you that if you move forward without, forward without heeding the warning that is in this passage, you will fall into the collapsed bridge or you will end up in an accident. I don't know what else I was going to say. I got confused. <laughs> Just going to be honest. But I want you to see the warning signs, and if you ignore them, you'll fall. Winston Churchill, crazy British dude, he was awesome. He said, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Paul is basically saying the same thing. If you do not learn from your spiritual forefathers, you are doomed to repeat their mistakes. And he reiterates that right here in verse 6. Now, these things took place as an example for us. So we will not desire evil things as they did. So when he says example, he just means like it's a type. It's, it's something you should look back to and remember. It is in our Bibles to tell us a story of what not to do, right? Of what not to do. He's trying to show them that people were saved by God, experienced spiritual life and provision, but then turned away and they never went into the promised land. And why? Well, it says they desired evil things. They desired evil things. So when you think about like, what does it mean? It means like craving, lusting after, intensely desiring something. And if you've been a Christian for like more than 24 hours, what you'll actually learn is that our strongest desires are not always the most godly or the most holy, right? Our strongest desires are not usually the best ones to act on, at least if you're like me. And the funny thing is like four-year-olds, they don't hide it very well. We've just gotten better at hiding that, right? Like a four-year-old will scream when they want something. We just scream on the inside and then manipulate our way to getting it, right? We all have these intense desires that are not always the most godly. So it's almost like desire is a war you always fight as a Christian. They were fighting it back then as Israelites. They were fighting it again as Corinthians. We are fighting the war of desire now as believers. This is the great war of life in Jesus. But why is the war worth fighting for? Well, in this passage, it tells us because holiness matters. Because the way we live matters to God. And most importantly, what we worship matters to God. Because he wants to be the only thing we worship. And he's serious about idolatry, which is just the worship of anything but God. And a, a sermon like this makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we don't like being told what we can't do, right? We don't really like being told there are restrictions. We begin to think that God's a little bit stuffy in telling us that there are certain things that he doesn't really want us to do. But I'm telling you, outside of God's desire for it and command of it, holiness is a weapon and a way to be a witness in a world of compromise. It is a weapon and a way to be a witness in a world of compromise and indulgence. And like I've said already, the idolatry of the Israelites is not unique. The Corinthians and also we struggle with the same things. So I'm going to walk really quickly through their four categories of idolatry and then kind of unpack where we all fall into it. So in verse 7, in verse 7, he starts with the first category of idolatry. So the Israelites are in pretty big trouble and I want to just tell you why. It's from Exodus 32.6. There will not be anything on the screen. But what they decided to do is Moses went up to meet with God, sit on the mountain and get the Ten Commandments. And while he was doing that, the Israelites were like, oh, that Moses guy is gone. You know what we should do? We should worship a calf and have an orgy. Let's do this thing. Like seriously. So they, they had Aaron, this priest, make a golden calf. They, it, the verse literally says, I think in CSB it says, they got up to party, right? 
So they were just on the hill at the library with a golden calf in the middle of the bar going wild, right? Or a giant shark in Sharkies. I don't know how that would work. But they just decided like, hey, that guy that's leading us is gone. We're kind of bored. What should we do? Let's idol worship. Uh, I think it's 3,000 of them died that day. So Moses comes down the mountain really mad like a parent, chucks whatever was in his hands, which happened to be the Ten Commandments, wouldn't recommend. They smash against the rocks. He grinds the calf up, makes all the people uh, drink their idol, and then he kills a bunch of them. Read that story. Why is that happening? Because God is serious about worship. God is serious about worship. And you're wondering, why is he so serious? You have to stay till the end. Why is he so serious? The next thing, verse 8. So a bunch of... uh, Moabites is what they were called, came to the Israelites and decided to tell all of the men, you should come have sex with all of our daughters and with all of us. And the Israelites, again, being kind of like we are, sure, that sounds great. God sends a plague and begins to kill all of them until somebody takes a spear and shoves it through two people having sex. Plague stops, but people died. You might be noticing a trend. In verse 9, again, people begin to test God. And by testing God, what they actually do is they tell him, it was better to be a slave in Egypt than to be free in the wilderness. What you've done for us, God, is not good enough. Does that sound like any of you? Because it sounds like me. And because it's not good enough, we want to go back. And so what God decides to do is hurt some more of them, and they die. And then lastly, in verse 10, they begin to complain in their discontent in the wilderness. And in number 16, you find even more of them die. If you're like, well, what about the Corinthians? The first example, worship and celebration, Corinthians are literally in trouble for eating feasts at idol idol temples. The Corinthians were always with temple prostitutes and one guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Remember that? The Corinthians were complaining constantly about these restrictions Paul was putting on their life because they wanted to be free and do as they pleased. The Corinthians were actually complaining that Paul wasn't a good enough apostle and they wanted somebody who was more eloquent and a better teacher. They didn't like all these things that Paul was telling them they couldn't do. And I think if you're like me, you read all of those and you find yourself in some of them too. You find that your heart is in there too. And what Paul told all of those stories to us for is because of verse 11. He says, these things have happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what he is saying is this was written for you and I to learn a lesson about our spiritual ancestors, especially from their mistakes. I had a Spanish teacher who said, really smart people learn from other dumb people's mistakes. This is our moment, Salt Company. To learn from their mistakes, but it starts with admitting we are just like them. See, because I think the Corinthians probably had their Achilles heel flaring up again, which was spiritual pride. They had this idea that, well, that was then, this is now, it's not really the same. And that's why Paul used an Old Testament example, multiple ones, to let them know you're no different. The same narratives of idolatry humanity was falling into now are the same ones that are falling into now, then, now. All of you are like, why did he say that so many times? I got confused in my head. Stay with me. You got me, Molly, right? Yeah. It's this idea, you guys. The Corinthian church was not taking their holiness very seriously at all, and the truth is, neither do we. They were not taking holiness serious at all, and the truth is, neither do we. Why? I think because we have the same problem the Corinthians did. It's spiritual arrogance. The Achilles heel of the Corinthian church. That's why Paul literally says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. We don't take the idea of idolatry very seriously And I think there are all kinds of reasons for that that I want to cover. First, 
I think it's because we think of someone sitting in a Far East temple in front of a giant Buddha, worshiping this giant statue. We have this view of idol worship as, oh, it's well, just this thing that they do over there. But what about a family who orients their whole schedule around their children? What about all of us who live our lives digitally curated through our phones? And I know I harp on those, but it's because all of us have them. See, idolatry has to have a broader category because our hearts are way too creative at finding things we shouldn't worship and really good at making them things we worship all the time. Think about the idol of consumption. Most of the time, you don't even think about this. America is 4% of the world's population, but it consumes 27% of the world's resources. Did you know that? 27%. They say it would take six Earths to continue to sustain America the way it consumes. But we never talk about that idol, about how much we just take and take and take and take and take. Or pleasure. Like, you do know that the pornography industry makes more than the NFL, the NHL, the MLB, and the NBA combined. I think I got them all right, right? Like, you do know that one of the most popular websites visited now is a porn site. We worship pleasure, but that's like the obvious one. Some of us, we worship pleasure in small ways, right? Where we just buy anything we want all the time. Or relevance, that's a big one. See, the one thing I don't doubt about any of you in this room is your passion for Jesus. If there's one thing that's true is that you guys light up for Jesus. You are so about him. You will do anything for him, but it seems like the only thing you won't do is start to live a holy life. Like we will do anything except when Jesus starts to tell us what we can and can't watch. We don't like that. We will do anything for Jesus unless it means we will actually be looked at as weird or lame or irrelevant in our culture. We love the grace that Jesus offers, but we don't like when he starts to have a say in the way we are living. And that needs to change. We cannot be in the world and of the world. That's not what Jesus said. Why? Why is this happening? I think there's a few reasons. The first is, I think, the most dangerous, and in a, a ministry this size and in a church this big, I know it's got to be true. You're just a Christian by association, right? See, the problem for those that died in the wilderness was most likely that they thought their proximity to God and his people made them Christians. Well, because I'm around it and I'm experiencing it, that must mean that I'm a part of it. And that means that there are some people in this room or will be people that pass through this church in their four years of college who will get baptized, who will go faithfully to a connection group, who will be here every Thursday night and will walk away and never follow Jesus again because they were sure that their proximity was enough. And if it wasn't enough for the Israelites, it's not enough from you, for you. Okay, this is the way I want you to think about it. Okay, imagine okay, we're all going to the Super Bowl. Like I hit the jackpot, decided to take all of us to the Super Bowl. Um, and because uh, I just want to see the Patriots lose, I go in with a Rams jersey on, right? So we're there, we're cheering for the Rams. Okay, let's say they win. And I, and I come up here the next Thursday and I go, I won the Super Bowl. Like we did it. We did it. Like, that's how sports fans talk, though. You know, they go to the games, they're in the stadium, they're cheering, and then when they win, they go, we did it. We did it. It's like, no, you didn't. Jared Goff did it. Did you throw any touchdown passes? No, you didn't. 
You screamed at the TV for most of the season, got lucky and made it to the game, right? Okay, I think some of you in this room are the fans in the stands thinking you're on the field when you're not. That you look at your Christianity and you think, well, I'm in the building. I've got the jersey on, but you're not on the field. You're not on the field. You're not actually following Jesus. Your heart does not belong to him. Your affections are not for him. And remember, it's a war. But in every way, I want you to realize that you cannot live deceived. Just because you're in the stadium doesn't mean you're on the team. Just because you can put the jersey on does not mean that you will throw any touchdown passes. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 7 literally promised us that people will come to him and say, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do all these incredible things? And he'll have to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. The reality is that some of you have banked your faith on proximity and not on relationship. You've thought, well, because I'm doing all these Christian things and around these Christian people, that must make me a Christian, right? No, because with the Israelites, just being born into the Israelite nation and seeing God do all those things was never what made them God's people. It was always the condition of their heart. God is operating the same way then as he is now. And so you have to ask, is that me? And again, I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm trying to be like that warning symbol. I'm trying to be like the blinking lights because you're headed for a crash. And I want you to know that just because you're in the stadium does not mean you're on the team. What else? Why? Why would we be struggling with idolatry? What would cause our spiritual arrogance? I think another thing is a lack of awareness, okay? I think we're just not aware, but I think it's because God is not the central thing in your life. Your life is not oriented around God. He's part of the peripheral things that orbit around you. I think holiness will not matter to you if he is not the center of everything. If you keep God in a box and take him out when you need something to make you feel a little bit better or to get your parents off your back because you went somewhere on Sunday, I don't think you're going to value holiness. He's got to be central. He's got to be everything. He's got to drive all of it. Another thing I think is relevance. I think we have a culture of Christians who would rather be cool than holy. I think we would rather fit in than be set apart. I think relevance is a huge issue to our holiness. We're more afraid of being unpopular or out of the cultural loop than being set apart for God. And I think this passage is warning us that it can't stay that way. And lastly, I think we've leaned too heavy on grace. You treat God like a parent who lets you party as long as it's in his house under his supervision. Do you ever have any friends like that? I had tons of them in high school. The parents were like, hey, you can do whatever you want as long as it's at my house. So like, get drunk, go crazy. It's okay, you can stay here. And I think then we, we abuse God's grace that way. We think, well, well, I'm saved. Like, he loves me no matter what I do. So you do whatever you want to do. And it's pretty clear that that's not a loving way to treat your parents. And God's not that kind of parent, so don't take the metaphor too far because he loves you too much to give you whatever you want. The truth is, just like the Israelites and the Corinthians, we fall into the same patterns. We think we're stronger than we really are. We think we can do things that other people can't, that we can withstand movies, music, and activities that other Christians probably couldn't handle. And the truth is, we are often way too casual with something that took a cross and a perfect son of God's blood to free us from. We are far too casual with the sacrifice of Jesus. 
So what do we do? I think the first thing we do is we admit it. I think we have humility and we say, God, something's broken in my heart. And then the other thing I think we do is we repent. We turn away from it, which that's where we all get the lump in our throat because that's where your, your sin will start to squirm the closer you get to your idol. Did you know that? If you want to know if you're close to an idol, watch how fast your brain starts to try to justify what you're doing. That is likely the greatest idol in your life. How rapidly is your brain trying to tell you, no, it's fine, I can find a way, it's gonna be okay. You are getting very close and Satan wants you to bail. Jesus is saying, go deeper because he's too jealous for your heart, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so we hear that. We know sin's really good at convincing us to toe the line and go too far. But before you get like a, I just gotta grit my teeth and I'm just gonna live in the country alone and just eat bear meat and I'm never gonna see anybody again. That's how I'll avoid idols. You'll find one there, I promise. But before you think this is all about you doing it for Jesus, Jesus is always going to do it with you. Verse 13, that's why he puts it there. Jesus does not live a, leave us to live this out on our own or muster up our own strength. See, Jesus never wanted us to think that failure was inevitable or unavoidable, okay? Now, you need to look at me and hear that. Constant failure is not inevitable or unavoidable in the Christian life. We often walk around far too defeated for being children of the Son, or for being children of God, right? For being bought with the holy price that he bought us from. We far too often walk around defeated. Look what verse 10 says. 13 says, I'm all over the place, guys. I'm sorry. Too much coffee in the cold. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. It means no one's experienced anything that you haven't experienced. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation, he will also provide a way out. In every temptation, there's an escape route that you will be able to bear it. Okay, there's some things we need to realize when we read this. First thing is we're in enemy territory. This side of eternity, we are on enemy territory. We live in a world who is not excited about our desire to worship God, but is actually hostile toward it. We live in a world who's under the rule and reign of the devil. See, Jesus won the war on the cross, but we still fight until he returns. There are still battles on this side of eternity. But thankfully, God does not ever leave us to where we cannot escape. But see, Satan is really good at lying. In fact, he's the father of lies. And so that's where he goes after us. See, I think we often think, okay, Satan's gonna get me to do really bad things. No, what Satan actually does is get you to think things that are just a little bit wrong. Satan, we think, oh, he's gonna get me to do these really bad things. No, he's just gonna twist things so you believe it just enough to where you always fall. That's what he did with Eve, right? He just took God's words and twisted them just enough for her to fall. And so what we have to see is that Satan is more interested in getting us to believe lies than he get, is interested in getting us to do bad stuff, okay? So these, this passage, this verse, talks about lies, and then it addresses the truth. Here's a lie that maybe you've believed, because I've believed it. Only I struggle with this, so I should probably keep it to myself and never confess to anyone, because they'll think differently than me. Of course, no one else would struggle with this. Why would they think that way? What that verse says is no temptation has seized you that is not common to humanity. The lie, I'm the only one who struggles with this. The truth, you're not that special and praise God for it, right? That is a good thing that most often what Satan does is he puts two people in a connection group who are struggling with the exact same thing and he wants to keep both of them quiet. Or if he gets one of them to speak, he wants the other to judge them and go, I thought I was the only one, but I want her or him to be the only one, so I'm not gonna say anything. And he keeps you a slave to the thing that is destroying your heart. 
what you have to see is that you are not that special and praise God for it. There is no temptation you have faced that is only unique to you. There is no temptation you have faced that is only unique to you and praise God. Number two, the lie. The temptation is too strong. It's irresistible. I think we often use that as like, there was nothing I could do. Like it was too much. Like I just had to fall. I couldn't get out. And the truth, it says he never allows temptation to overcome you. There is no such thing as an unbeatable temptation. Do you know how much that would change your everyday walk with Jesus if we really began to believe it? This passage says that there is no temptation that, you, that like is beyond what you can bear. There is no temptation beyond what you could bear. And then the last lie is I couldn't say no. I couldn't say no. See, that's the most dangerous because that's where you feel the most defeated. Once Satan has you convinced that you can never say no, he can keep you in the dark for a very, very, very long time. And tonight, Jesus wants to shine a floodlight on the nasty, golem-looking reality of that lie and let you know there is always a way out. There is always a way out. You can always escape. If you begin to think this way, you will begin to act this way, and things will start to change because victory over sin is possible. If you and I begin to change the way we think about temptation, it will change the way we handle it when it comes. And by the way, temptation is not sin, okay? I think sometimes we feel guilty just because we're tempted. You're human, so like he says, you will be able to bear it. Like if you have to bear something, that sounds like a struggle. Like, like two arming a four-year-old and a two-year-old who are both really hungry and don't like each other at 8 a.m. Like that's, like I am bearing the weight of that. Like it sounds like it's gonna be there, right? So I, I just want you to see it's a struggle, it's a fight, but you can handle it. Victory is possible. But what, what do we do, right? So now that we know that, we need to follow Paul's line of thinking in verse 14. He says, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And because I'm a little bit nerdy, I think about Gandalf, right, as he's about to go fight the Balrog, like you guys know. And he goes, fly, you fools. And then he goes and fights the devil, and it's the Jesus thing, you know, it's so great. But anyways, gosh, that gets me. And then they're all crying on the rocks. I can't go into it. I just watched it a couple days ago. But Paul, he's saying, fly, run, right? Flee, like run away, go far away, avoid, get away. Like this would radically reorient everything about our Christian lives because what's true, again, if you're like me, is the question you ask is actually how close can I get when Paul is saying you should ask how far away can I be? See, the question we all want to know is how close can I get without actually sinning? And what Paul is saying is, oh no, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking how far can I get so it's not even close. Instead of asking how close can I get, you should ask how far can I be? And I don't know, I mean, there are probably plenty of them depending on life circumstance, but I don't know of a more idolatry, opportunistic time of your life than the four or so years you have in college. I don't know a time where you have more freedom and ability to get into things that can totally capture your heart. And so I know though too that the idols that will claim you now will follow you forever. Did you know that? That the idols you give room in your heart now will probably follow you forever. And depending on how far you let them mine themselves into your heart will determine how long it will take for you and Jesus to dig them out. And so you have to recognize the seriousness of idolatry. And what is idolatry? For all my black and white friends out there, I have nothing that will help you. 
See, we want black and white definitions of idolatry, and the problem is that our hearts are far too sinful and far too creative for there to be clear things that are idols and aren't. Now, there are clear ones, ones that God makes clear in the scriptures and the ones that we harp on all the time, sexual immorality, drunkenness, those kinds of things. But what I'm telling you right now is we are too good at taking things and turning them into idols. So what you need to do, and you'll have time to do it, is have a conversation with the Holy Spirit tonight. What are the idols in my life? I love this quote by Tim Keller. Listen in, I don't have a slide for it. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Idolatry is the treasuring or delighting or giving ultimate affection towards something that isn't God. We can turn anything into an idol. If you want to know like the big three that I think us as Americans face, it's comfort, pleasure, and self. Comfort, pleasure, and self. And Jesus says, you'll be most comfortable when you die. You'll find your greatest joy in me and you'll find yourself when you lose yourself. And those are the three biggest idols coming for us, I think, in America. See, you become what you worship, so we'll never become like our Holy Father in heaven if he's not the primary affection of our worship. Here's other ways that I identified idolatry in my heart that have ruined my week, so I'm going to ruin yours. What do you do or what do you run to when you're stressed? What do you do or what do you run to when you're stressed? Right? Where do you go or what do you run to when you are afraid? When you are most uncertain of what's happening around you, what do you do? Where do you run? And then lastly, where do you go when you want to numb your thoughts and your feelings? Where do you go when you want to escape? Who do you run to when you don't want to be where you are? Where do you go? Think about those don't let tonight be the only time that you and Jesus sit together with them. My um, advice to you is to sit maybe each morning next week and give one of those questions a good amount of time for God to speak to you. But I do want to talk about balance. So this can make people anxious because it's like, so can I not watch The Office or can I watch The Office? Like, is it okay to have three donuts? Is it not okay to have three donuts, right? Or like, can I hold hands with my boyfriend and girlfriend? Can I not hold hands with my boyfriend and girlfriend? Here's something that's true. John the Baptist, crazy guy, lived with a lot of restrictions. We consider him a holy person. Jesus Christ, often confused of being a drunk and a glutton. Probably the holiest person, right? We can give him that one. So... What I would like you to do is not use those as license to be like a crazy person who yells at everyone who drinks alcohol. And I would like you not to use that as a license to drink as much alcohol as you want and still say you're holy. What I would like you to do is remember that there's a tension to live in with your holiness, that there's a balance to it at times. But I think that balance is found in seasons. There may be seasons where God is calling you to let certain things go or that season might might last a lifetime, right? That might last a lifetime, but you need to be having a constant dialogue with God about the condition of your heart. And now lastly, this is where we'll kind of wrap things up. Why holiness? Like, why would God be so serious about us being so holy? Well, it's because in verse 16 through 22, he begins this conversation about covenant. Okay, and so on Mount Sinai, when Moses came down with the second version of the Ten Commandments, unsmashed, 
he made a covenant with the Israelites. He said, look, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's kind of the rules and ways that this thing will work. And it was kind of an intense covenant with lots of laws. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, I'm not getting rid of that. I'm just redefining it. But here's how my covenant is going to work. I've done all those law things for you. Now I want your heart, but I need to die in your place in order to make this thing a reality. So on the night he was betrayed, he sits down with his disciples. He takes this cup. He says, this is my blood given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then he takes the bread and he rips it. We've all been in church long enough to know this. He says, take this in remembrance of me. It's not supposed to just be some like, okay, this is what we do because we're Christians. No, it's supposed to stop us in our tracks because we're supposed to remember our covenant. Like a covenant is not a contract. A covenant, like it's kind of marriage vows, but it's even bigger than that. Like a covenant is this deep, soulish commitment. Like when you make a covenant with somebody, it is a deep and powerful commitment to them no matter what. Like you, you are committing your heart and your allegiance. It's more than friendship. It's something so deep. And Jesus makes a covenant with us. And so in verse 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Like I said, communion is not meant to be a weird ritual. It's supposed to be a reminder of a covenant that was made with us. We didn't ask for this covenant. Jesus just knew we needed it. It was made with his broken body and his blood. You guys, the reality is that we weren't asking for this covenant, but because Jesus loves us, he came and offered it to us anyways. Like you have to realize that. Like our hearts, verse 22, it's gonna talk about him, him being jealous. And I'm just gonna kind of go off my nose for a little bit. Okay, listen to this covenant in the Old Testament, whenever he talks about it, he uses marriage language. Like, like he tells the Israelites, you hoard yourself out. Like Paul, or Paul, God gets a little intense. Like he's upset when they give their hearts away to other people because God wanted them to know like, what's your ultimate kind of like covenant you could make? Marriage. Marriage is this intense, powerful covenant. And so God is trying to let the Israelites know through Paul, like, hey, my, my broken body, my spilled blood, that's a covenant I made with you, a kind of relationship that's bigger and greater than marriage. Like how many of you would be totally cool with me having a couple affairs this month? Right, thank goodness we would talk after this. Like you should feel uncomfortable about that. But you know what I've noticed? I look at adultery and I go, that is horrible and gross. But I look at my own idolatry and I make all kinds of excuses for it. I find adultery more disgusting than idolatry in my own heart. How, like, no, you've got to put them on the same level and then let our idolatry go billions of years higher and in levels higher than marital adultery. Like, like Jesus Christ came to a bunch of people who said, we want nothing to do with you. I thought we made that clear in the garden. And he said, I love you. And he got on a cross that all of us deserved. The whole time we screamed at him, you're a criminal, you're a fool, you're disgusting. We want nothing to do with you. And he said, I'm gonna give everything to you. Because he is jealous for us, because he knows anything else you give your heart to is gonna treat you like a slave. Only through the covenant God has given us will you be treated like a son or a daughter. Only that covenant will treat you like a son or a daughter. He is trying to get you and I to see that he's jealous for us because he wants the best for us. Because he knows he's the only thing you can worship and actually come more to life. Anything else you worship, you'll slowly continue to die. 
God is jealous for our hearts because he loves us. Everything else you worship is jealous for your heart to make you a slave. And so tonight, while you hear the warning, believe it or not, what I want you actually to end hearing is the love the love that God would have for you because of what Jesus did in this new covenant. You don't have to purify yourself, go through all these rituals and then step into his presence, hoping you don't die. But at any moment you feel in your heart, the conviction of the spirit, you can run into his arms and you will hear the father say, I'm so glad you've come. I forgive you for all of it. I'm so glad you've come. I forgive you for all of it. And so tonight I want us to recognize that God's call to holiness, it's not to make us stiff. His call to holiness, it's not to keep us from things that we think are good. His call to holiness is out of his great love because he knows that he has to be the ultimate, primary, utmost affection of our heart if we're to be the people that we were always meant to be. He's jealous because he's some four-year-old who's upset that someone stole his toy. He's jealous because sin took his sons and daughters and he is not content to ever let sin keep them. You realize that? How good that we have a jealous God who as much as we whore ourselves out, he always comes and gets us again and again and again and again and again. And so here's what's gonna happen. Um, We're gonna sing like four songs, but I think if you're like me, you just need space, right? You need space to talk to Jesus. And so What's best to do if you're like, what do I do now? I have so many idols. Like me too, my hands are full. Put them at the feet of Jesus. Do that by turning to someone, your connection group leader, your best friend, our salt staff, they're gonna line themselves up back there by the sound booth. Go to them like Jesus, the scriptures say there is power, there is cleansing, there's something beautiful in the confession of sin, in the repentance of saying, I'm gonna leave these here and never come back. And so if you feel like God is telling you, do that, turn to somebody and do it. And then worship. And then worship. And remember, when that voice tells you, yeah, you should probably pay a little bit more of a price. Or I don't think you confessed quite the way you should. Make sure you've confessed cleanly and clearly. But don't let the voice of the enemy condemn you and keep you from worship. Tonight you have a God who, Christian or not, if you're not a Christian, he's saying, repent and come into covenant with me. And if you are a believer, he's saying, drop the idols so I can hold you instead. So we'll have space to do that. The band's gonna come up now. I'm gonna pray. And and we're gonna watch God speak to each of us. Father, it is just continually blowing my mind how powerful and relevant and real your word is right now in 2019 and how real and powerful it was uh, to the Corinthians and then even to the Israelites as they were experiencing it. What I believe about your word is that it is not like anything else because you spoke it and that every single generation before us and everyone after us, if they open this book, they will find life in you and they will find the way to truly be, be human and change. But tonight, Father, I know if anyone in this room is like me, their hands are full of idols. That there are things that they have done that don't line up with the covenant that they've entered with you. And I want tonight to be a night where our hands end wide open and free in the love of the Father. And so would you, Holy Spirit, draw to our attention the idols that we have in our lives? Would we confess them? Would we repent? 
And then would this room be filled with worship that's warfare against the idols of the world? Would our worship remind the enemy that although we're on his territory, we're taking back holy ground? Would you do that tonight, God? We're, we're grateful to be with you. Thank you, Jesus.